the book, Taka Taka Bom Bom. What does that mean? Um, I grew up. Can you hear me? Let's switch it on. Switch on. I don't. Yeah. Um, I grew up in my very early days in Port Elizabeth, where my father handled uh, Allied convoys. He was responsible for Allied convoys between South Africa and Europe. Um, and that sort of dates me to tell you that he fought in the First World War against uh, the Germans in Tanganyika, as it was then. Um, and he, has, he was one of the guys that was sent up there. 20,000 South Africans that went to Tanganyika. And uh, he got involved in an ambush at one stage uh, against von Leto Vorbeck, a very clever German tactician uh, who uh, rang rings around the Allies, us included. His main force was black soldiers that were extremely well trained and probably at that time uh, among the best fighting, fighting troops uh, in Africa. Uh, they, they were, that's why they won all their battles. Uh, so when he was involved, when he got involved in this uh, ambush, he learned that the Swahili word for, for machine gun is taka taka bomb. Uh, if you look it up in the dictionary today, it's been taken off as the meaning, but it is part of that Tanganyika history. And I thought that that's a marvelous joke because I was about four or five when he used to put me to bed and he used to tell me a story that always ended up with taka taka bomb. And when I, when I suggested to uh, the publishers, I said, when I came to them to begin with, I said, just attack, attack, a bomb bomb. They looked at me in horror. Uh, I said, well, it's either that or nothing. And uh, so, <laughs> here we are. Um, you, you say in the book that it's not an autobiography, but it is deeply personal. Did you enjoy bringing in that aspect of your life because it is very different to the other books that you've written? Or, or was it a challenge? being a bit more personal and, and also emotional at times. It's very, um, it's very much a lot of tales of events that happened. Um, it was a marvelous period that I was lucky enough to go through. And uh, I've got Denise Munyan sitting right there, who's the widow of Chris Munyan, one of the great British journalists uh, for The Telegraph. And uh, he features very well there. But this is, she will bear me out. That, uh, we bumped, we knocked heads and shoulders and uh, everything else in Rhodesia in those days. It is a wonderful period um, to be able to go around Africa, the 60s and the 70s. It's very different now. Uh, it's, 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 it, was, it was probably just as dangerous then, but uh, you had a good measure of what was going on and you knew what to do and what not to do. Um, and there were a few silly things that went on along the way. So you asked whether uh, it is uh, something that is a pleasure to write. Curiously, writing is quite tough because I'm very technical and I specialize uh, in warfare. But for a long time, uh, I've been contributing to James. They've got about 10 or 15 magazines in their sale. And pre uh, the Twin Tower tragedy, I was living in America. and. I could go just about anywhere uh, to follow, at that time, what I was interested in most, which was chemical, biological, and nuclear warfare. I've written three books on uh, nuclear warfare. Uh, and those books are very technical, lots of footnotes and so on. And that's tough writing, because if you make a mistake, you're going to be pulled up very smartly, especially with James, who's 
which really the standards are extremely high. It's a good, it's a good uh, grounding board for uh, that kind of journalism. This is different. Taketaka Bomber is a story of great adventure, uh, wonderful people, uh, some of the biggest scoundrels in the world, me included. Uh, <laughs> if there's something that you... Yes, I expected that. <laughs> but it is, it was for me uh, an experience and if you look at the epilogue, I say I'm only half there because I've got this to write and that to write, there's a lot more uh, that, that I could put in. And then volume two is going to come, that's my, I'm finishing off a book on all the wars in Africa. Uh, just to put you in the picture of why uh, it's a war correspondent, uh, Lynn, my lady at the back, a former uh, uh, diplomatic corps, lifelong British, uh, we had just come back three weeks ago from covering the war in the Central African Republic. And we are distinguished in being the first octogenarians to go and cover a war together. So, and you know, it was quite something because it's a damn dangerous place. Uh, that place is falling apart because of the Russians, what the Russians are doing. Uh, I'm, I'm going to digress a little bit from time to time. Because, that's you know, you're welcome. The Russians, the Russians are, what, what we found is there is a country, and nobody has covered this from the, from the media point of view, that is now being recolonized. For the first time in Africa, a country is being recolonized by the Russians. They've taken over the country very literally. They command the army. They, they, they tell the cabinet what to do. They have a ring of steel around the home of the president. Office and home. And they do that and they're successful because they say to the president, you came to power in a coup d'etat, an army mutiny. We are going to stop that happening again. So you will listen to us. And, but the worst part about it is the brutality. The Russians, th this is basically, the people that are opposed to them are mainly Muslim people that came down to the north and they are a minority. They were tired of the corruption of the government and they thought they could take the, they could take the capital again. We, uh, uh, 2013, that's 10 years ago, and they took it, but then uh, they also fell out of line and they as a consequence are now full targets of the Russians. And if the Russians can kill somebody that follows the Islamic faith, they do, so the murder is incredible. The murder rate is unbelievable and the media is not touching it. You've got 15,000 United Nations troops there and they do nothing. And, and I'm, I'm, one of the things I'm famous for, and some proud of, I'm highly critical of what the United Nations doesn't do. And I, I wrote that with the war in Sierra Leone, where they sat and did nothing. I was in Mali for a month last October. 16,000 troops, they've done nothing. And that is now completely falling apart. You, the British have said today they're going to be putting their forces out. Uh, it's, a, it's a situation where, uh, because nobody does anything properly, a, a bunch, the, the, a fanatical group are going to take over. And that's the way it is. And, and nobody's, there's no media. You can't get into these spaces for a start if, you're not, if you don't have an authority, a visa. These countries aren't issuing visas, no tourists. There's not a single tourist. Well, now, on that point, because 
when you started out, what struck me from reading the book and the tales that you tell is how easy it sometimes was for you to, to get into these dangerous places. But take us back to the the Al Fenter war correspondent origin story, because you did a few other things before you decided to, to become a war correspondent. Yeah, well, uh, I was in the Navy for three years, and this was a peacetime Navy, wonderful Navy. I was barely 17 when I, when I volunteered. Uh, I was one month out of the trick, and I joined the Navy, and it's a wonderful three years. At the time, I thought it was horrible. But looking back, it's like all old soldiers, they, they can't wait to talk about it. And uh, so I was three years there, and I then hitchhiked across Africa, uh, went to uh, North America, and I came back to London, and I decided that I liked shipping because I'd been at that sailor, and I uh, found a job in, in, near the Baltic Exchange, and I started my studies, and, and some years later I qualified in the city of London, uh, and today I'm, I, I, I've never used this in my profession. In my as a writer, I, I, it's one mistake I made, is that I'm a fellow of the Institute of Chartered Shipbrokers, which is belongs, which, which means I'm associated with one of the most august professional bodies in the city of London, and I've never used it uh, until now. It's the first time I've ever written. So uh, to come back to this is that I did I set up Steiner Line. At 27 years old, I was asked by the chairman of Clarkson Shipbrokers. He put his arms around me and said, this young old guy, wonderful old man, how'd you like to run your own shipping line? And I thought, oh, what a question. Uh, but of course, he, really, he is Sir Alexander Glenn. Uh, I said, sir, where do I start? I did that four months and, and now we're coming to the war. And then my managing director said, good, go home. I'll tell you, I'll call you when you went to the next project. That went on for three or four months, and every month I'd come to him and I'd say, you know, what, I'm, I'm at home. He said, Al, you like to write, don't you? Why don't you go home and write? I'll give you a raise in the meantime. So for three months I got a raise every month. And, uh, but after three months I thought, bugger this, I, I went to work. And I'd been through Nigeria on the way north the second time, five years after the independence, and I found the most wonderful, what an incredible place. Of all the countries in Africa, Nigeria, five years independence was the people were great. I was a, somebody from the white south, they would feed me palm wine to find out if I was lying about being a racist or not. But they were, they were so friendly and, and, and I moved from one group of people to another. And uh, it, I thought to myself in London at the time, if I'm going to come back to Africa, that's the first place I'm going to go to. And I applied to, to the three biggest companies and I got an offer of a job for all three. So I took the one and I arrived two days after the Nigerian army had overthrown the government and murdered a hell of a lot of people in the process. And I then couldn't go back because I was there and they gave me a job at the international airport, Ikeja, which is called Matala Muhammad today. And I was sent out on the road, all over the place, all over the country. I saw Nigeria like very, very few people see Nigeria. Uh, it was different, roadblocks. I almost, it, 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 it very, became dangerous. And I came back to the office after one time we had a dinner with the staff and I said to the managing director, I said, you know, I've been wandering around, I've been talking to a lot of people, military too, I said, there's going to be another coup. And he really, he really blew his mother. He thought, come, call me ignorant, bloody fool, come with his rubbish. You know, what are you trying to do, undermine the company? 
And I was told to shut up. Um, and I did, but I started, I was writing there, and I did two stories. I was writing with a star. Uh, a guy called Wolf Nassib took me under his wing and knew shit. And although I couldn't write on the cards, I, I got uh, a publisher for Heskelet, and I wrote two cover stories for Heskelet for Newsnet predicting a coup d'etat. And two weeks or three weeks after that was published, the second army mutiny came. And that is the one that has continued ever since, killing of northerners, payback time, northerners killing southerners. Uh, it's one of those things. The Southern has killed a lot of northern Muslim people and well, it's, it's something that you see in all over Africa today. They, the two can't reconcile and that's that. So, there I was in Nigeria, the second army mutiny, no media allowed, and everybody's phone phoning me and saying, have you got a story for us? And of course, there's no journalists. So, uh, I, was, I, I was writing for UPI for uh, NBC News, New York, Star, uh, all of them, and, and, and making quite a bit of good bit of money. Um, now, what I do, you couldn't get, you couldn't, we didn't have faxes in those days or cell phones. I would write my story and I'd take my pictures and I'd take, a, I'd have a school. We had one of those jobs. And um, my office was at the, at the Keju Airport. And the second army mutiny, by the way, was planned within. 50 meters of my office, the whole thing was set up there. And so I would get my story, typewritten, typewritten and, and I put it in an envelope and I'd sign it up to some old lady or old man. At the airport you had Pan Am, Lagos, Johannesburg or VA, uh, going back to London. And I'd say to you, with heavy sorrow on my face saying, you know, I wonder if you could give me a favor. My mum has no idea how I am. <laughs> Do you? I've got an end of that. I want to show her pictures that I'm okay. She doesn't believe me. I talked to her on the phone. I said, well, what person would say, well, how am I going to? I said, uh, are you there going on business? And usually I'd look for somebody that's going on business. They'd say, yes, we're going to Johannesburg on business. I said, well, you probably stay in a hotel when you start. Yes, yeah, I am. I said, I'll tell you what. There's a telephone number here, Wolf Nassi's number at the start. Uh, won't you call him and he'll, get, he'll collect it for my mother. I must have sent out 50 stories and I never lost one. So, <laughs> it's one way of starting a career as a journalist. Because by the time I got back to South Africa, everybody thought I was a genius. Uh, so it helps, you get jobs. Uh, and I think it would have been a hell of a lot easier if I had told them I'm a fellow of the Institute of Child Shipwreckers rather than a, a, a budding cub, cub reporter. Al, uh, okay. what was the most challenging conflict for you to come? Because you don't really make that distinction in the book. You give every conflict that you write about equal respect and treatment. But for you personally, what was the most challenging? Um, <coughs> Lebanon, for certain. Lebanon was... Uh, that civil war went on uh, for 15 years and I I was then fairly seasoned and I would go in um, regularly uh, over a 10 year period, period I'd go in for a month or two at a time and uh, the uh, it's, it's not something that uh, the, the worst war of, 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 of them all is urban civil war 
And I have a real fear that we, if we don't, if this government doesn't handle things properly, they could end up with the same sort of thing. And that's not, I'm not criticizing anybody, but it's a fact of life. Uh, this is hot ground for conflict. When you've got so many people without work, uh, it's, I didn't want to talk about politics, but it's a fact of life. Uh, so, in answer to your question, there, boy oh boy, uh, it's just unbelievable. Um, it's just one example. Uh, I, I mentioned this to somebody yesterday, so I'll, I'll say it, I'll tell you again. I, I was with a, a group of uh, combat people uh, who took me under their wing for, for quite a long time. I'd go back to them regularly. And uh, on one occasion they said, how would you like to uh, see an attack? Now the, the green line is through the middle of Beirut. So you have, you've got the road with the uh, Muslims on the one side and the Christians on the other. And I was with the Christians at that stage, and, and the, 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 the army on the other side was mainly Syria. So because the two opposing sides are so close to us, they don't generally keep troops there because then you can throw a hand grenade across and there'd be certain checkpoints. They usually on the first floor of an apartment building, or what had been an apartment building. Everything else is blocked up. So they took me under, underground because it was probably the ground floor, but it then became underground because there's no lights, there's nothing, you had a torch. And there had been people killed. There had been ambushes underground. And they took me to a place and then the guy uh, four of us, three or four of us, and he uh, then handed me the their equivalent of an RPG-7 rocket launcher. And he said, here we are, Al, uh, stick your head out, but quickly, and if you look to the right on the first floor, you'll see some lights. That's the only lights you'll see. There's a bunch of Syrians in there. Go get them. So I said, uh, uh, oh, man, that's, that's bloody good of you, but uh, I, I'm not here yeah, for that sort of game. I said, this is serious business. I said, in any event, I don't want to fire that thing in the close confines. And it's not my job. It's not what I do. It's not what I came for. So he laughed and he said, all right, I'll do it again. He then fired obliquely over there and right into that nest of, of Syrians and he killed, probably killed uh, them all. One or two mother because we had screams and we ducked back quickly, back all the way in the underground, and they were congratulating themselves, great job done, and uh, well, it's a serious business, I mean, you've killed somebody, and uh, I've witnessed to that. So they then said, come on, we're going to take you to the Sonico building, it's called, it's about 200 or 500 meters up the road, we had to walk in the dark, and that was a 24-story building um, that was partly partly uh, uh, built so the last six or eight stories were like you see here when a building is all finished. The floors exist but there's no superstructure but there's a lift and there's a central concrete core. And we went to the top which was a, uh, an observation post for this unit. And I had a young guy, his name was uh, Christian, 21 years old, student of the Sorbonne had come home to fight, to his bit. And, uh, he spoke French and Arabic, as the Christian side does. And uh, he was with me all the time, and he was next to me there. 
But the fighting was going on all the time. And then suddenly, because, and I'm sure of it today, because we had killed the Syrians, that entire line opened up from the south of Beirut into the north. Every possible piece of artillery, RPG, rockets, Katushas, the lot, and it just, and I'm sitting standing at the top and I'm watching this entire front open up. And this is a horrific scene because we, 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 all we got is a flat platform up top. And we're looking at this and we're looking at each other and you, um, it, 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 you can't, you, you lie down, you lay down next to each other just looking up. He was actually, he was a spotter. For the, for the forces that are down below. And um, then the, the Syrians had a weapon, it's a Russian weapon, a very good one, they're using it in Ukraine a lot, ZSU-2324. Uh, it's a heavy machine gun, very, and if you pull the trigger, it's, it has four barrels, you only pull that trigger for half a second because it, it lets loose a volley of fire that is about 50 meters, maybe 100 meters, I can't remember. 50 meters, 60 meters, 70 meters. But it's a roar. It's a single roar of fire. And the first batch went right past here. And two or three minutes later, the second batch went right past the right-hand side. I thought, hell, uh, this, is, this, is, this is terrifying. It was one degree off, and that we would have been the target. Now, Christian had been acting a little bit funny all night long and I couldn't understand. He's just a young guy and he coming under fire and he wasn't handling it very well. And then we were hit by something hard. It wasn't Z, uh, uh, 24, 23, but something hard hit below us. Enormous explosion. And then we heard a scream when Christian had stepped back into the open light shop. Like the lift shop. And um, well, that is the most terrifying thing. You know, it's just, he's gone. And um, the, the commander up there said, okay, we better get out of here. And we then had to walk down. There's no lift. We had to walk down. And uh, on the way up was the com overall commander uh, who was Rocky. Rocky was a big, powerful guy. And, uh, he was on his way up, and we were on our way down. And when we met, the guy that I was with and Rocky got into an enormous argument in Arabic, of which I understood nothing. And they really shouted at each other. And then Rocky gave way, and we went down. And I said to the commander, I said, what's up? He said, well, Rocky came up here. He thought you'd thrown Christian down the lift shop. He was coming to throw you over the edge. And I had to tell him that you were next to me all the time. And that is a little bit of good luck. Um, but that story that I'm telling you now has been following me for a hell of a long time. And you don't get over anything like it because it's a young guy died. And I, I went to pieces. Uh, I ended up sleeping in the basement. By then, they were, they were mortaring us with the big stuff, 240. Well, so just every one of them would shake the whole building. Uh, so there's a lot of personal things that were involved in this sort of thing, and that's one of them. But Al, how, how did you deal with the trauma back then? I mean, you're 
couple of cowboys covering conflict areas. The concepts like mental health that didn't exist, but how, how did you deal with the trauma of seeing things like you just discussed? Okay, but that's very unusual. Generally, we had a very good time. It is a, we didn't get ourselves shot at. Denise is having a good laugh, but she knows what a good time we had. And lots of alcohol then. You see, we had, we had a bunch of journalists. We had a bunch of the best journalists in the world. And Africa was the ultimate posting, because it is a very comfortable posting. And Rhodesia became the home from home that everybody aspired to, because of a bloody good life. You were paid foreign, foreign allowances. You had five servants. You had five. Uh, and uh, you, the cheap food was cheap. The wine wasn't that good. Good-looking girls. <laughs> we smuggled it up from South Africa. And, uh, and when things got really tough, you have things happening. Like, we both have a friend called Peter Young Husband, and his partner, John Monks. And they were based for a long time in old Leopoldville, today Kinshasa. And Peter Young Husband uh, tells us tells a story about They've been in Leo, and they both, he, Peter wrote for the Daily Mail, and John Monks wrote for the Express. And they've been there two weeks, and both editors were sending their messages and saying, for goodness sake, what are you doing? We can see in other networks that there's a big war that go in the Congo, but, so why aren't you there? So John spoke to Peter and said, listen, we better do something about this. So they got their heads together, and they, they said together, but a different time, so a different time, a few hours difference, to the new respective uh, newspapers saying that uh, there's been an invasion from the north, way north of Leopoldville, near the river, by rebel force, reckoned to be about 2,000 strong. Um, the, they met up with some uh, opposition from the Congo uh, security forces, uh, more to follow. Right, the next night they're waiting for more to follow. So if they get their head together, uh, we heard today that they uh, vanquished those and they're now moving on the road to another city called so and so. And uh, the government in Leopoldville is rallying troops to get together. And of course, nobody knew what the hell was going on in Leopoldville, so nobody could refute this. Uh, and <laughs> this went on for about eight or ten days. Every night they had to get their heads together for this modern story. They crossed rivers, they used, they built improvised uh, in their minds. <laughs> uh, they built improvised bridges, uh, there were massive ambushes, and boy, this, this caught on. This is a tremendous story. And it also caught on with the other newspapers of the world. And newspapers started, news, newsmen started to arrive at Leopoldville Airport. <laughs> looking for the war and wanted to join in. <laughs> so, John said to Peter, he said, Jesus, we want ourselves in a hell of a fix. Yeah, what do we do <laughs> So they had to get, they had to give a big final look at that. Uh, we today have the bad news to tell you that uh, the, the government has managed with massive loss of life um, and the rebels have been vanquished and we've been cut off completely from them. And in the meantime, the media world was contacting the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Congo and nobody, the, the, the bits and pieces of press that they were, and everybody was contradicting everybody else. 
Uh, and uh, having done that, uh, they both scooted back to Salisbury to release me. <laughs> That's one of the stories. Oh, uh, what, I mean, given how much it's challenged covering conflicts, and I'll get to that now, but, but what was the most challenging aspect of, of covering some of those civil wars and conflict areas in Africa and elsewhere? It's a, you go into a country that has a war, like I went with Neil Ellis to cover the war in Sierra Leone, and with me, I'm fortunate I knew a lot of people. And Neil Ellis had the only helicopter gunship that's a high-end MI-24. Uh, and he was very successful in what he did, and I wrote to him, and we covered the war in, in, in Angola. We knew each other very well. We know each other. We're still in touch, virtually every other day. Uh, we, we watched our children grow up. And I said to him, I want to come and join you in Trita. He said, okay, well, come, I'll organize your visa. And I did. Um, I flew in through Conakry, you know, regular flights. And um, I then went out on daily sorties with Neil. And what was normal to him, uh, we'd, we'd leave off in the morning, he had rocket pods on both winglets. He had a Gatling, 12.7 Gatling in the front four barrel. I mean, these things are really, this is a lot of fine time, but they were always short of ammunition. So the, I forget how many, it's 57 millimeter rockets, I forget how many it took, 40? I don't know, something like that. And he'd only full half, so we could only hit so many targets at a time. But um, you can't just go around shooting, you, you know, you spot your target, which is not one person, it's usually a body of rebels, and they all got a lot of weapons themselves. So we're always being shot at, but they haven't been taught how to lead. So everything would be behind us. And, and uh, Neil had a way of making long, large turns, which frightened the hell out of me. He's never been properly wounded. I envy him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> He's just, and I said to him, you know, these rebels are cutting the hands and feet of women and children. And what you saw there was something that you couldn't take photographs of. They, they were drugged up kids, child soldiers, and child, children, as you know, have no fear. So it is very difficult. Uh, difficult war. You had to destroy it in order to make any gains. Um, the, some of the pictures I saw, I, can, I can't talk about it. It's just so disgusting. So, I felt nothing about hitting enemy targets because I sat in the, in the high, the pilot sits under, under the back bubble and I sat under the front bubble. So, he was a bit higher than me. And he had I had all the ability to use the weapons, pull the trigger if I wanted to do, but he never, I, that's not my business. So he could fire everything from up there. And he had much better eyesight, much better experience on the push. Neil could spot things that took me a long time, even, even as we were going into finals, only then would I see what he was shooting at. And we'd only stay out as long as our ammunition was, and they would go in, and, we'd, and, and I wouldn't go out on the second mission that day. You'd go out again. Sometimes he went out three times a day. Uh, now, the British moved in, and the Brigadier uh, David Richards, he, he, after his 
commanded uh, the coalition forces in Afghanistan. And, and I got to know Brigadier, then Chief of General Staff of the British Army, and then today Lord, he's got a, a fancy name, but a very practical man and a very sharp mind. And the small British force was sent out to rescue all the British nationals. But when the Brigadier arrived there and he, he, he spoke to Neil to begin with, but he'd been told by Whitehall, you will under no circumstances talk to those mercenaries. That is an order. But the Brigadier was stupid. The best source of information was Neil. Neil ended up taking all the SAS guys on. They saw these reconnaissance missions um, to the point where those of you that read my book, Gunship Ace, I quote, I was in touch with General Sir David Richards afterwards, and we exchanged points and, and also gave me tell me what Neil was doing. And, and he, I then said, I need a quote from you, sir, for the cover of my book, because General Sir David Richards saw what has been done and he accepted it and he worked with Neil. I'll come back to that in a moment. And for my cover, as at the bottom of the cover, Neil Ellis is a great man. I and the people of Sierra Leone owe him a lot. Chief of Defence Staff of the United Kingdom wrote that. And I've, I've got it in, in his handwriting. I've got the letter. Um, so that is... Um, something that, you know, the mercenary element um, turned that water up. Uh, you will remember a, an incident with 15 or 20 British soldiers got kidnapped by the, the West Side boys, the rebels. Uh, and Neil led that attack. British Air Force Royal Navy attack. He took him in. But I can't, I say it, but it can never be acknowledged because he is officially a person. Oh, you've had a few close shaves and you've discussed some of them here, but you've also had a few health scares. I don't want to give anything away, but perhaps just tell us the story of the, the ribeye and red wine incident. You <laughs> mind? Which one? The doctor that made that uh, the diagnosis and, and also the suggestion of, of what could perhaps cure your heart ailment is to go to a steakhouse and, and to have a good steak. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, at that stage, I was making a hell of a lot of money. Uh, I ended up, I'll come back to this as well, being asked by the CIA to make a one-hour documentary in Afghanistan. Um, and I then sent in three teams into Afghanistan. And I also had a team working in West Africa in Ivory Coast. And uh, I, in those days, because I was working so hard, I would be quite strict on myself. I'd, I'd lay off liquor for one or two months a year, and I'd lay off red meat for one or two months of the year. But you can't be wandering around the world under heavy pressure all the time. So I got to, making a film in Abidjan, but I had to see the Minister of uh, Tourism or Travel or whatever it was, and I had a, 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 a mind, a French man who worked for uh, Air Africa, it doesn't exist anymore. So he took me to the Minister's office one Friday afternoon or whatever it was, and uh, I was going to meet the 
the, uh, the minister and I took his hand and I, uh, I could speak good French by then. Monsieur, merci, with jazz, thank you, so on. And I sat down and my head popped down. And I had a pain in the chest. So now he's, he becomes catatonic behind his desk. And my French guy doesn't really know what the hell to do, but he's a good buddy. And he's very apologetic to the minister. So he says, anyway, he now has to get me to Arsenal. So he says, don't worry, don't worry. I'll get in the car and take me now to what we drive through the city into one of the back streets, which is not, not in the slums, it's in the general area. And there was a house that looked a bit like a fortress. This was a, a cardiac clinic, the best in the, in, the, in the country. So he knocks on the door and uh, he eventually, after about three or four attempts, the door opens slightly and uh, a guy says, uh, oui? He says, uh, uh, he says, why? Why do you? He says, my friend's got a heart attack. Yeah. This is a clinic. He says, um, and we've got argent, money, <laughs> silver. So, uh, Pierre, his name, of course he doesn't want it around. With, uh, how much? Quite a lot. Hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of dollars. So, he said, I don't walk around with that kind of money. Slam the door shut. So, anyway, eventually he banged again and he says, okay, listen, I'm going to go and fetch some money. He said, but this guy is sick. Let him in. Slam the door shut. So I said that's I don't know when Pierre comes back, he gives him the money. Now I am now led into a fairly it's about the size of this a hospital, about the size of this room. And um, he gives me a bed, and in the other corner is a woman that's obviously dying, a young woman who's keep on scre screaming in pain, and he kept on telling her to shut up. And uh, so now I've got the best medical treatment available. And uh, he says, I've got to give you, uh, what is that thing they put it in a, but for that, to do that, they put these things here, but you need, you need oil, you know, to make it stick. No, he hasn't got any oil. So Pia has to now go to the corner where the women are selling olive oil on the sidewalks to go and get some oil. So he comes back and he, he goes me up for me. Makes lots of noise and he's reading this thing. I don't think he really knew what was going on there. Uh, so. and, you know, and, and, and then he'd go off, he'd hear screaming, and the other side he'd go off for about 10 minutes, and that would shut up. And this woman kept on screaming over here. And of course, I couldn't say anything, and I wasn't in a very good shape anyway. So, <laughs> eventually, a very professional lady doctor, a French lady, arrived. And she got to work checked me out properly and did another one of these jobbies and um, looked at uh, all aspects thorough and then after about five minutes she said to me she came and sat down on the edge of the bed she said Mr. Fenter she said I'm going to discharge you because you told me that you're not eating meat and that you are running around the world like a crazy man and you've just come now you just come back from Islamabad uh, I don't know anybody else that rises and doesn't sleep and doesn't eat properly. I think you should go back to your hotel. It's a hotel in Bois, one of the nicest hotels in Africa. Go to the steakhouse and order yourself a ribeye. Good one. 
and the bottle of wine. <laughs> and that's the end of that story. <laughs> and, uh, but that's Africa. It's, it's a sad situation, but uh, I don't think I don't think Pierre was aware that there's probably much better. There are much better hospitals today than there was then. Oh, I, I think how we for time, maybe one last question. So the last question I'd like you to ask you is, what makes a good war correspondent? It's got to be a bit stupid for a start, uh, because anybody that that um, wants to follow that sort of uh, career must be a little bit crazy. But uh, I suppose it's a sense of adventure because that's it's not you're not into wars all the time. You're a, you're a, you're a writer, you're a correspondent, a journalist, and you're covering a lot of other things that are linked to it. And the wars are incidental. Uh, you don't purposely go out looking for unless there's something you do. Like I, uh, to me, Mali, which I went to last October, uh, I could get it. And I had been working very hard on a couple of books, and I, I used that opportunity. I wrote to the Admiral, the NATO, one of the top NATO guys, and I said, I know him very well, but I said, can I go with your guys uh, into Mali? And he said, it takes a bit of time. He said, but yes. And I went for a month. And I did the same now for Lynn and I to go uh, into the Central African Republic. So that is a question of, of um, context. Um, and, and, and I must go back to the first war that I covered, which is Angola. I had traveled overland through Africa, uh, the West Coast, in, in, in 1965, 64 65, when I also went to Albert Schweitzer's uh, hospital. And I was stuck in a place next to the Portuguese Guinea, which was a house nearby, which was run by the Russians and lots of aerials sticking out. And it was obviously linked to the war that the Portuguese were fighting Portuguese Guinea. And when I got to London, I mentioned it to somebody, South African, and he, I got a call from the Portuguese embassy, the, the military attaché, Colonel uh, Lemos Pires. And um, I asked, he asked me uh, to come and have coffee with him. Which I did, and then he said to me, "I want." To, he said, "I'm not going to surprise you. I want to talk to you about this business um, that you saw there. Do you think you'll go in? You can show us where it is." And I, it never happened. But I made a friend. So when I was working, I came out of Nigeria. I went back to South Africa. And I thought I would like to go cover the war. This is Angola. So I wrote him a, a letter and I said, "I'd love to go cover your war. I think you owe me." He sent me a letter back, send me your passport. <laughs> and that's how I got to come to the first war. And that's how I covered all the Portuguese wars. Uh, it's a question of who you know, how you learn that. Do we have time for questions? Is Conflicts actually, a bigger picture of connecting to what we are having right now around the world. And what uh, what was your perception there and then? How it has changed? That last part is a, 
is, is difficult. But there are definitely many more wars now than there were before, and it's getting worse. Um, Ukraine is symptomatic of that, and uh, one of the things that, since you mentioned it, um, the Russians have fared very badly in Ukraine, really, very badly, and they've used up, I believe, half their tanks and a fair proportion of the air force. Um, that is not missed by their old enemy. They never make the war against the Chinese, but they're not friends. China wants half of Siberia, and Russia has shown that it can't even fight a minor power. And somebody in Beijing has taken really good notice of that. So if we're not going to wait too long before uh, you're going to see some sort of movement across that border. Um, there's a British journalist who's been along that border recently, and I attended his lecture, and he said that that, you travel the length, the, the, the Chinese were okay, but the Russians weren't okay with it, because he would cross from side to side. He said, but on the one side of the border, it's intensely cultivated, okay, cultivated. It's, 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 it's all at good arable soil for a thousand, for two thousand miles. And on the other side, nothing. It's the other side that the Chinese want. Because they want to do that. So that's just one example. And there's going to be many more wars in Africa because things are falling apart now in Central Africa. And Mozambique is not being handled either by the Mozambique or by the South Africans. And the Rwandas tell a lot of lies about their, what they are doing because they're not. Those guerrillas in northern Mozambique are bloody good. They are the best fighting men imaginable because they, they are sharp, well trained in Somalia, they have the gear, and they drove Wagner Force, the great Russian Wagner Force that is now murdering every, every uh, uh, Muslim they can find. They, they lasted four months and they packed their bags and they went back to Russia. So, in answer, we're into bad times. And uh, this government is facing a very serious situation as well because you can't have a, a large proportion of the population out of work. And when you have a large proportion of people that are going hungry, uh, it comes back to the French Revolution. We've got nothing to lose by doing something about it. I'm not predicting warfare, but I, I'm very unhappy with what I've seen. Uh, so let's go on. Yes. Okay, and that one, what is your dream? <laughs> I dream about what? I dream about what? Anything. No. I'm at 84, don't ask a man. Then. What is your next book? No, I won't get to that now. Let's, let's go and ask a few more relevant questions. Who's next? We'll be very, very shy. Well, I think we've reached the end. There's a gentleman over there. Sorry. Have you actually been up or is it still the best yeah. You're going to have to use the bank. Yeah, it's, it's on its way. There we go. Is uh, Timbuktu um, restored the library and all the damage that was done a few years ago? Because South Africa was so very involved in, Timbuk in Mali, Timbuktu, and the library. I'm not with you on that one. I, I don't understand. Is he saying Timbuktu? Yes, Timbuktu has it been restored? 
the library. Yeah, to I, I know what library. you're saying. They, 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 destroyed, they destroyed the Muslim, you're talking about the rebels that destroyed the Muslim documents, the ancient documents. Has it been restored? The gentleman wants to know, has it been restored? The Timbuktu Library. I haven't been there since this happened, no. Okay. You can't go up. It's, very, it's been handed over to the, to the Mali army. And if, if you're looking for, for, a, for an easy death, you attach yourself to the Mali army. No easy deaths required. Thank you very much, everybody, for I'll coming. Take, I'll just take one question from. Have we got another? Yeah. When? He's going to try to get a question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My name is Kubuzo. I just want to know what inspired the creative writing bug in you to take on this journey and the adventure. Well, you know, this should have been answered in the beginning because when you ask how is it shaping, um, I qualified, I'm a very well qualified man, but I, I've never worked in it. And when I took on writing, I wrote, I was terrible. <laughs> because I used to read a hell of a lot of, an enormous amount in school. So I read all the classics, Sheridan, Wilde, O'Henry, all the, uh, Shaw. So that when I did my first, reports uh, to the star, they came back to me and said, Al, uh, you've got to get into the more modern mode because your stuff is thoroughly Dickensian. <laughs> <laughs> and so it took a long time for me to learn. And as I said, if I'd have boasted about my qualifications, they could have been easier on yeah. <laughs> But this leads to the second point. One of the great uh, writers, uh, I, 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 I knew, um, I know Frederick Forsyth very well, and somebody wrote to him uh, not long ago, he's a good buddy, I, I, I talked to him from time to time, and asked him, I want to be a writer, what do I do? And Redis wrote back and said, you need to write, and write some more, and write some more, and write some more. He said, you've got to do your 2,000 hours of writing. And then you can set up. It's like any any trade, a mechanic, an engineer, a, 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 an electrician. Two thousand hours. Okay. So.